Hi, listeners. Today, we're bringing you a special episode that means a lot to our team. Earlier this month, we had the honor of speaking with Judy Human, a lifelong activist and trailblazer for the disability rights movement. Judy and I spoke about her incredible life of advocacy, and we bonded over being total foodies. I promised to treat her to some amazing poutine if she ever found herself in Canada, and she promised to show me the sights in D.C. But a few weeks after we talked, Judy passed away. She was 75 years old. I've been thinking a lot about our conversation, and I hope you all are as moved and inspired by Judy's life work as our team is. May her memory be a blessing. Now, on to Judy's story. It's the morning of the medical exam, and 22-year-old Judy Human is pumped. She's a recent grad living in Brooklyn, New York, and she has big hopes of becoming a teacher. And after countless hours cramming in the school library, prepping for her credential exams, there's just one last thing standing between her and her teaching license. A standard medical exam. Basically, a physical. Looking up at the education building, Judy takes a few deep breaths and shakes off her nerves. She's got this. She's aced her oral and written tests, and this exam today is just standard procedure. No biggie, she tells herself. But one thing makes her pause. The endless flight of stairs right in front of her. So I don't walk. I have use of my hands, limited use of my arms. And so I had to get my friends to carry me up one to two flights of steps because there were no laws that required accessibility. This is 1970, a time before buildings had ramps or streets had curb cuts. You know, those little dips in the sidewalk that level out. Meaning that ever since Judy can remember, she's had to rely on others for things like helping her across the street and getting into her own house. When she was 18 months old, Judy contracted polio, and she's used a wheelchair ever since. But the flight of stairs leading up to the exam is the least of her problems. Judy knows that her dream of becoming a teacher, specifically as a disabled woman in a wheelchair, is uncharted territory. There were no people that we knew who were wheelchair users who had gotten their licenses while they had their disability. Judy could see that her path would not be easy. In the exam room, things are all routine at first. The doctor takes her blood pressure, listens to her heart, but things take a turn when the doctor fixates on Judy's polio diagnosis. I'm what you would call a post-polio because polio is a virus, so the effects of polio. Quadriplegic, meaning that it impacted my legs and my arms and my torso. Seeing Judy in her wheelchair, the doctor starts asking her to show her how she walks. Judy tells her she can't, but the doctor insists. Show me how you walk with a brace and crutches, things Judy hadn't used since she was a child. And at one point, the doctor even asked Judy to show her how she goes to the bathroom. I was in disbelief. I mean, that was embarrassing. 
Judy remembers the heat rushing to her face. There was a realization that I wasn't being treated equally. Three months later, Judy's exam results arrive in the mail. I passed the oral, I passed the written. I was failed on the medical in writing because of paralysis of both lower extremities, sequelae of poliomyelitis. In other words, the New York City Board of Education had failed Judy because she couldn't walk. Reading the results, Judy is fuming. So Judy called up the people that specialize in fighting against discrimination. I called the American Civil Liberties Union and told them, here's the problem, and I'd like to come in and talk with you. And they called me back and said, no need to come in. This was not discrimination. One of the major civil rights organizations in the United States was saying, yes, you were denied your job because you couldn't walk, but we will not talk to you because we don't consider this discrimination. We consider this a medical decision. Okay, so no help from the ACLU either. But Judy wasn't about to give up. After I was denied my teaching license, I decided that I needed to fight with the Board of Education to get them to reverse the decision. Judy was going to sue the New York City Board of Education. Taking on a lawsuit on this scale was no joke. It would draw loads of attention to herself, something Judy had always hated as a kid. But over the next couple of months, there was an outpouring of support from the disabled community. People stopped her on the street to share their stories of discrimination, and even major news outlets like the New York Times and the Today Show called her up for interviews. And when the verdict in the case finally came down, even the judge was on her side. It was like a perfect storm. You couldn't have planned it any better. And so she basically told the Board of Ed, that she encouraged them to give me another medical exam. They did. They granted me my license. And this case would be the spark that would launch Judy into a life of advocacy that would lead to groundbreaking legislation and completely transform the lives of millions of Americans. And so winning that was not just a win for myself, but it was a win for all those people who were experiencing discrimination. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That, a different kind of history show. I'm Takara Small. Today, the story of Judy Human, the mother of the disability rights movement. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So, Judy, it's lovely to meet you. I want to hear a little bit more about your early years. 
You were born in the 1940s. And so how were people at this time treating individuals with disabilities? So as I was growing up, I was living in my neighborhood and I was the only visibly disabled person on East 38th Street in Brooklyn, New York. There were no houses that were accessible. And in the synagogue that we went to, I was the only younger disabled person. So there were two flights of steps to worship in the synagogue. And my father would carry me up and down those two flights of stairs. How did it feel? You were constantly experiencing barriers in society. I mean, everywhere you went. (sighs) Well, having a way to do things that other people did on their own, that was embarrassing. And because the media was not really covering discrimination against disabled people in a meaningful way. It was this continued invisible discrimination that was happening that wasn't getting resolved. And this widespread invisibility of disabled people? It has an incredibly dark history, rooted in these laws known as the ugly laws. Basically, these laws that were passed in the 1860s literally outlawed the appearance in public of people who were, in the words of these legal codes, diseased, maimed, mutilated, or in any way deformed, so as to be an unsightly or disgusting object. And as you can probably guess, these laws often targeted groups like the poor, the homeless, immigrants, and those with visible disabilities. Most of these laws were evoked by the 1970s, but Judy still has plenty of memories growing up of going out with her friends to neighborhood restaurants and being asked to leave because the owners thought she'd be bad for business. Disabled people all across the country had similar stories of their own. And this is what pushed Judy to continue her advocacy after winning her lawsuit against the New York City Board of Education. As a result of my lawsuit, we set up an organization called Disabled in Action, which still exists in New York. Forming Disabled in Action sent a powerful message that their fight belonged in the larger civil rights movement happening in the 60s and 70s. Activism was something that was really playing out in our communities. And we were recognizing that we were not a part of it, that we weren't wanted by these other communities. Why? We were invisible and or the stigma of disability. I think we really have to recognize that people do not run to becoming a disabled person. It's not like my aspiration in life is to become blind or deaf or quadriplegic or whatever. What we're saying is, This is who we are, and these are the same contributions we want to make to society, regardless of our disability, our race, our gender. While the 60s and 70s were a time of progress for racial and gender equality, disability rights weren't even on the table. In fact, they were completely left out of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. No one was really fighting for the disabled. So Judy's group, Disabled in Action, mobilized with a mission to push for laws that would guarantee the rights of people with disabilities. 
And one of these important pieces of legislation is called the Rehabilitation Act. This law was a very important law in the area of disability. There was a new provision in this law that was called Section 504. What did that mean for the disabled community? Section 504 says, if you are an entity receiving money from the federal government, you may not discriminate against someone based on their disability. And was really gonna mean, for example, if you were a deaf person and you wanted to be a doctor and you met all of the requirements and you needed an interpreter, they were no longer gonna be able to deny you the right to become a doctor. And if they did, you'd be able to file a complaint. The Rehabilitation Act would be a huge step forward for the disabled community. And all they needed to get the ball rolling was a little signature from the president. But... One day I received a phone call from a friend who told me that the Rehabilitation Act had been vetoed by President Nixon. And we decided in New York through Disabled in Action that we were going to have a demonstration and protest the president's veto. Four days before the election in 1972, Judy and her friends of 15 strong make their way over to a federal building in Manhattan. President Nixon was up for re-election, and the activists wanted to send him a clear message. Judy was a woman on a mission. She parks her wheelchair in the middle of traffic, and the other activists follow her lead. On all sides of her, there were towering trucks and blaring horns, all screaming at her to move. But she's unfazed. Together, the activists start unfurling banners and raising homemade signs that read, Sign Section 504, and Help Us Break the Chains. And I know that nobody ever thought that giving us this address would take this ragtag group of 15 people to go to Nixon headquarters, but we did. So we stopped traffic on Madison Avenue. And of course that got everybody's attention. We wanted people to see us in a way that they hadn't been seeing us. We wanted to be making a statement that the president needed to sign this law. Then we had another day of demonstrations where we got disabled veterans involved. The disabled veterans gave Judy's demonstration some much-needed muscle from a group that pulled more weight in the eyes of the U.S. government. And after months of similar demonstrations in support of Section 504, Nixon couldn't take the heat. In the fall of 1973, he gave in and signed Section 504. But signing the law was only step one in a long battle. There were a lot of things to figure out before the law could go into effect. There weren't things to find like, what was a disability? What was discrimination? What would an entity receiving money from the federal government have to do if discrimination was alleged? There were so many questions that needed to be answered. Several years go by, and basically nothing has changed. Legislators were stalling. And when Nixon later resigns from office, it feels like any momentum activists have been able to scrape together is lost. But in 1976, there's a beacon of hope. Newly elected President Jimmy Carter vows to enforce Section 504. 
He tells his Secretary of Health, Joseph Califano, this is your responsibility now. Califano was a stocky dude with furring eyebrows and loud opinions. He takes one look at the bill and says, um, yeah, no. You see, at this time, powerful businesses and organizations were also pressuring the government to abandon Section 504 enforcement. They hated the idea of having to dedicate resources to increase accessibility or lose their federal funding if they didn't comply. After years of lobbying and letter writing with lawmakers that have gone nowhere, the disabled activists have had enough of waiting. They decide to do something Califano can't ignore. Up next, the longest takeover of a federal building in U.S. history. That's after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's 1977, four years since Section 504 had been signed. It was the most powerful federal protection for disabled people in the United States. But it was toothless without regulation. Legislators have been dragging their feet on this for years now. And activists, well, to put it mildly, they're pissed. There were thousands of people who were experiencing very significant forms of discrimination on a daily basis across the country. And 504 really was empowering. It was really going to force people to stop looking at us as objects of pity and charity. Judy and other disabled activists have given the Carter administration a ticking clock. Take action by April 4th, or there will be consequences in the form of a national protest. So when the morning of April 4th rolled around and not a peep came from the Carter administration, disabled activists mobilized the next day, staging protests at federal buildings across the U.S. But the protest in San Francisco was the one to watch. That was the longest sit-in takeover of a federal building in U.S. history. What were the emotions that were going through your mind? Were you scared? Were you fearful? How did we feel? We felt we didn't know, right? This sit-in was not planned. Just like demonstrating outside of Nixon headquarters. Honestly, that was not the plan. Yep, you heard that right. The longest sit-in takeover of a federal building in U.S. history wasn't even planned. 
At the San Francisco Federal Building on April 5th, a crowd of over 100 people with varying disabilities scaled the marble steps. And those who could walk helped activists in wheelchairs up the steps and through the doors. At the front of this crowd was Judy. And when she got inside the federal building, she was shocked by what she found. The people in charge, the government representatives, didn't know anything about what we were talking about. They didn't know what 504 was. They didn't know anything about the regulations. They just said this is being handled in Washington. And this was the moment Judy and the other activists dug their heels in and decided. They were not leaving until they saw action. On April 5th, 1977, proud and defiant, people in wheelchairs with walking canes and hearing aids stormed the regional office of Health, Education and Welfare in San Francisco. Their purpose? To stop discrimination against the disabled, no matter what the consequences. This sit-in was a huge moment for unity within the disabled community. Before this landmark sit-in, the movement was kind of fractured. Activists from across the disability spectrum didn't often work together. They had their own causes and unique needs to meet. But this moment, when everyone barricaded themselves inside the San Francisco Federal Building, it was like a joining of arms, a recognition of shared experiences and injustice. And it was powerful. This was really our moment. It was a strengthening of the community. There were many young disabled people there who were doing a lot of activist work. And when those people, plus parents who had kids with intellectual disabilities, deaf people, blind people, people with psychosocial disabilities, all of these groups came together and we recognized that we had power. But there was another thing for organizers like Judy to consider like how to take care of the over 100 protesters that had assembled in the federal building. Many of the protesters didn't bring necessary supplies, let alone a spare change of clothes. Only a couple of days into the sit-in, the government cut the building's water and phone connections. Protesters found themselves in dicey waters. How were they going to communicate their next moves discreetly? But deaf protesters knew another way to communicate. Yep, sign language. That was one way they began passing messages in and out of the building. All things considered, the protesters were quick to adapt. But sit-ins are an incredibly taxing form of protest. And the pressure to meet the needs of people with different disabilities, well, it was enormous. They needed help to keep things going. And they got it from some fellow activists. We got support from the Black Panthers, and we had three meals a day that the Panthers brought in. We had support from local rights-based organizations, progressive religious groups, anti-war groups. The sit-in even got support from the mayor of San Francisco, who sent over mattresses for the protesters. And each day when Judy and the other activists received food deliveries from the Black Panthers and local groups alike, she felt overwhelmed by the unexpected groundswell of support. In real, tangible ways, these groups that she had always admired, 
but felt like an outsider looking in, were helping her historic sit-in see another day. We come from every community. And so it's not just the need to look at disabled people, but it's also needing to look at what some people call the intersectionality, like what makes us who we are. I mean, you can even hear in my voice, this is very emotional because um, I do believe that you know, our coming together does make a difference. With each passing day of the sit-in, protesters are anxious to hear about the status of Section 504 and whether or not legislators will come by and hear them out. But they try to keep their minds off the high stakes by having wheelchair races down the hallways and even holding an Easter egg hunt on Easter Sunday. Eleven days pass before a representative from Califano's office finally arrives at the federal building in San Francisco to meet face-to-face with protesters. And Judy was ready to deliver their message loud and clear. This is Judy at 30 years old speaking to the representative. We want the law enforced. We want no more segregation. We will accept no more discussion of segregation. And I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about. In this footage from that meeting, the Califano representative is shifting uncomfortably in his seat, leaning so far back he looks like he just wants to disappear. At one point, his face completely drains of color and he literally leaves the room and tries to lock himself in the bathroom so that he doesn't have to face the protesters. But no one is letting the legislators off the hook. In the days that follow, Judy and a delegation of other sit-in activists traveled to D.C. to put even more pressure on Califano. They hold candlelight vigils outside his home and even ram their wheelchairs into his office doors after being refused entry. This is Judy outside Califano's building. I felt like I was being excluded from a building that I pay taxes to keep open. And to have these big six-foot, seven-foot cops standing there with people my size is the most ludicrous thing that I have ever been involved in. But Califano won't budge. Things are looking bleak until a breaking news report is released on April 28, 1977, broadcasting the official signing and implementation of Section 504. Good evening. 35 million Americans, handicapped Americans, won a big victory today. When H.E.W. Secretary Joseph Califano signed a paper today, the implementation of the law began. Victory had finally been achieved after 24 days. You'll see when people came out of the building that they were empowered, that they felt not only individually but collectively that we made a difference. And we did. We made history. The activists celebrated this hard-won battle, but the war was far from over. After the break, the road to the American Disabilities Act and what work still needs to be done. Do 
you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. After staging a nearly month-long sit-in, the activists had emerged as victors. Section 504 was a big deal, but it didn't take long for people to start seeing some of the cracks and limitations of its reach. Section 504's non-discrimination law only applied to groups that received federal funds. So most private businesses, healthcare providers, and even forms of transportation still had free range to discriminate against disabled people. The private sector is a huge driving force in the United States. So if you were discriminated against because you had an intellectual disability or a sensory disability, unless your state or city had a law which made it illegal to discriminate in the private sector, you were not covered. So after getting 504 passed, activists came to the conclusion that they needed to band together again and push for a more comprehensive bill. People knew that once you got the act, that didn't mean the world was going to change overnight. People did not leave saying, whoops, great, done, wipe your hands, go on next. We knew that this was and still is an ongoing struggle. So we needed to be able to build off the work that had happened around Section 504. Activists set their sights on the biggest challenge yet, creating the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, a federal legislation that would expand protection of disability rights to areas of public and private life across the entire country. In any major legislative changes, it is groups coming together and learning what do we have to do and to get an ADA passed. You needed to be able to have a strong enough group of disabled people from around the country who could come together, work together, and learn. Over the next several years, Judy would work with disabled activists from across the country, helping push the ADA forward. And there was one person who was central to this push and who would later be remembered as the godfather of the ADA. There was a wonderful man named Justin Dart. He had polio. He was a wheelchair user. And he began to get involved in the disability rights movement and developing the Americans with Disabilities Act. It took from 1982 to 1990 to get the law written and uh, negotiated through the House and the Senate. On July 26, 1990, more than 2,000 disability rights advocates gathered on the South Lawn of the White House. On a hot summer day, they were there to witness the signing of the ADA by President George H.W. Bush. Everyone out there and others across the breadth of this nation 
are 43 million Americans with disabilities. You have made this happen. All of you have made this happen. It was a historic moment. The demonstrations for Section 504 in the 70s helped pave the way for the signing of the ADA. The ADA was also the world's first declaration of equality for people with disabilities. Since the year 2000, more than 180 countries have since passed legislation inspired by the ADA. In 2010, former President Barack Obama appointed Judy as the first special advisor on international disability rights. Since the signing of Section 504, since the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, our movement has been expanding and there's a lot more that needs to be done. Today, disability rights advocates are broadening the movement. They want to see more disabled people in the workplace. Only 19% are in the workplace today, compared with 66% of those without disabilities. And the thing is, the fight for disability rights is a fight that affects most groups. Because the number of people with disabilities and the likelihood of becoming disabled is actually higher than you might think. According to a 2018 report from the CDC, one in four U.S. adults, that's 61 million Americans, have a disability that impacts major life activities. And with age, disability becomes more common, affecting about two in five adults over the age of 65 and older. While the advocacy work can feel endless, for Judy... One of the most important reminders that her work has made a difference is seeing the shift and how people with disabilities are coming forward to call out injustice, to see disability not as a medical problem to be solved, but instead as an identity worth protecting. I'm talking to so many inspirational people like yourself and just the fortitude and strength it takes to continually push for basic rights. I can just imagine it wears on the soul. And it's a fight that you shouldn't have to continually have to do. But nonetheless, that's, you know, where we are. Wearing on the soul, I think, is an important phrase. Because it does. We, you, me, and so many others, are fighting for certain rights. We want to be invited to the table. In many ways, disabled people coming forward and A, acknowledging they had disabilities because people didn't necessarily want to do that. But equally importantly, being able to speak about injustice, explaining that these were not isolated incidents, but the reason we needed a national law was because discrimination was pervasive in every state. For Judy, one moment brought her whole journey full circle. Over 50 years later, Judy would hear back from the ACLU about their decision to not support her after she was denied her teaching license. In 2021, I got an apology letter from the ACLU on the decision they had made at that time. What did that feel like? Like, what did that moment feel like when you got that apology? Long overdue, by the way. I cried um, because I had and still do very mixed feelings. I mean, clearly I was 
very happy that decades later they were willing to acknowledge that they had made an error. But I think it is important to realize that even today, many people do not look at those of us who have disabilities as equal members of society. So a lot of what we're always dealing with, and it gets back to many of your questions, how do you feel? I think that's a question to ask anybody who is facing repeated discrimination. Obviously, many of us get very angry, we get offended, we get hurt, but we also become empowered. No one person makes the changes that are being made and need to be made. And it's important for you, me, to recognize that it does take a village. Judy Human has left an undeniable mark on the United States and the rest of the world. From taking on the New York City Board of Education to laying the foundation for the Americans with Disabilities Act, Judy has changed the lives of millions of people. Although Judy is no longer with us, her life's work has sparked a movement that continues to this day. And her incredible story lives on in her memoir, Being Human, the documentary, Crip Camp, and her podcast, The Human Perspective. Rest in peace, Judy. They Did That is presented by me, Takara Small. This episode was written and produced by Serena Chow. This episode was edited by Jasmine Romero. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hamley. And our original theme song is by Cedric Wilson. Before we sign off, a quick note from our team. Judy's story is actually the last episode of They Did That. A big thank you to our listeners for coming along on this journey with us week after week as we uplift overlooked heroes. We hope that these stories have left an impact on your lives as they did on ours, and that you revisit them when you need to remember that those who are often written out of history change the world.